Thank you, Father, that you're a God who wants to come close to us. That's especially evident in what we see revealed in that manger in Bethlehem. Lord, as we have the privilege of being reminded of that this time of year, I pray that it would touch our hearts afresh, that you would move us with the the reminder of your incredible love for us. Oh God, thank you for the incredible love that you have for us. Just pray that you draw our hearts closer to you, that you would speak, that we would hear your voice, and that we would be transformed by hearing. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Peter walked down the hallway of the motel, and as he walked up to the door, I imagine that he took a deep breath as he went to knock on the door of that hotel room. He pounded on the door. The door opened, and there was a scantily clad woman named Nellie. And Nellie invited him into the room, and in went Peter into this room with a prostitute named Nellie. Now, Peter was an evangelist, and you have to wonder, what was Peter doing at the room of a prostitute at a hotel, going as a client? Kind of a strange place for an evangelist to be, don't you think? But you know, if you read a story in John chapter 4, we find Jesus in in somewhat of a similar situation. Go with me to John chapter 4. As we go there, I just want to remind you what we've been looking at. We've been looking at the first angel's message. Do you remember The first angel's message, the angel comes with a loud voice. He says, got everlasting good news to preach to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And he says with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship. We're going to look at that next part today a little bit and worship. But in John chapter 4, we pick up the story of Jesus. He's been in Judea. And this is the area near Jerusalem. This is the, the more populated area. This is where the, the religious are. This is where the temple is, or the religious leaders are. Uh, this is the area where the wealthy are. So in John chapter 4 and verse 1, it says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. <laughs> you catch this? The Pharisees hear that, that Jesus is having success in his ministry. And they hear that he's even more successful than that guy, John the Baptist, that people have been so excited about him flocking to. And they they begin to hear this, and there's talk about how, oh, is Jesus now the new popular leader? How does Jesus respond with, with this popularity that is coming after him? Look at what he does. And this is a beautiful picture of what God is like as he hears this, this jealousy being brought to light and saying, hey, oh, is, is there a competition between these two? Look at what it says in verse 3. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So he hears that there's some, some talk about the fact that he's baptizing more. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to fade out of this scene, and I'm going to go back to Galilee, the the more sparsely populated area where the the less uh, wealthy lived. This is a picture of what God is is like. This is a picture of what, what we celebrate this time of year. Not that he was born this time of year, but we are reminded that Jesus chose to come from the throne of the universe to this tiny little planet, to be born in a stable stable in a manger in Bethlehem. But look at verse 4. This is where it gets interesting. But he needed to go through Samaria. Okay, so there were two different ways that you could go from Judea to get to Galilee. And the way that, that the Jews normally went was they would go through the Jordan River Valley. And they would go on this a little bit circuitous route in order to intentionally go around Samaria. Because going through Samaria was awkward. If if you passed a Samaritan on the road, you had to go on the other side of the road. You couldn't just talk to them like friends. You couldn't interact with them. You couldn't ask for a favor from them. You couldn't... You could buy from them. You could... Uh, get your necessities from them. But this was about all that was allowed of you. But it was a much shorter trip to go through Samaria. It was a little bit more rugged to go that direction. But Jesus, it said he needed to go through Samaria. 
And, and most Jews would say, no, 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 no. He didn't need to go through Samaria. We all know that the way to go is through the Jordan River Valley. There's no reason to go through Samaria. That's, that's awkward. But Jesus goes through that, that area. And the reason they didn't like the Samaritans so much, to make a long story short, was when Nebuchadnezzar took captives out of Israel and took them back to Babylon. You have him bringing in some people from other nations and he left a few of the Jews there and they intermarried with these people from other nations. They began to bring in their other gods and they said they were still worshiping Yahweh, but they had idols, they had all these things that were intermixed. And so when the Jews came back out of captivity and they're wanting to be extra zealous about their religion, the Samaritans are like, hey, can we come in and join you and help build this temple? They're like, no, you guys are not one of us. And they pushed them away. And they didn't want them to have anything to do with building the temple. And so there began to have, be this animosity for the, the purpose of keeping themselves ritually clean, for, for trying to, to distance themselves from anything having to do with idolatry. They stayed far away from the Samaritans. But Jesus, where did he need to go? He needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? It gets even better. Verse six, uh, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Do you know what the word Sychar means? Drunkenness. Oh, so he's going to Samaria, this place where the idolaters were, where the heathen were, where they didn't want anything to do with them. They didn't want to get anywhere near them. And then he chooses to go specifically to Sychar, that place that's known for drunkenness. And this is where we find Jesus. What is Jesus doing here? And what was Peter doing in the room of a prostitute? Verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey. Okay, just, just pause right there. Here, when we think about the God of the universe coming from the throne of glory to come down and become a human being, he's getting tired. He's getting thirsty. These kind of things are unimaginable for a divine being to choose to experience this willingly. And yet that's what he's going through. The God who created everything is here walking and getting tired. He's wearied from his journey and he sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would have been noon. So noon is not the time when anybody goes to get water. But specifically, there's something that you need to know in context of this story about what took place at the well. The well was the place that you had early in the morning, the women were allowed to come and get their their water there. It was known as basically a private area during that time. The general public couldn't just come there. It was all of the women coming to get their water. Then during the day, it was fine for men to come there and do it if they needed to get water or something like that. And then you had the evening, again, was the time when the women would come to the well. Now, this was the, one of the few outings that a woman was allowed to have. Philo, the historian, talks about, or philosopher, Jewish philosopher who lived before the time of Christ, talks about how a woman's place is to be in the house, and a man is to be outside, and a woman should stay there. I'll give you another idea of a person, uh, Plutarch, who was a historian a little bit after the, the time of, um, of Jesus. He said this, the best woman is she about whom there is least talk among persons outside regarding either censure or commendation, feeling that the name of the good woman, like her person, ought to be shut up indoors and never go out. And you could bring up a lot of other instances of, of historians or writers in that time who, who pointed out that the woman's place is to be inside. She's to stay there. She's not to go out. That's where she needs to be. And she shouldn't be, a, a man shouldn't know anything about another man's wife. That man should be the only one that knows about his wife. And they shouldn't have a conversation out in public because that's just indecent. In fact, in some of the laws, it was assumed, like when you see Jesus was brought, the, the, the adulteress uh, who was caught in the act of adultery was brought to him. And they don't bring the man. It was because it was immediately assumed that if a man and woman were caught in adultery, it was the woman's fault because a man can't resist a woman when they are alone together like that. So the woman shouldn't have gone there and have been in that type of situation. This was, this was the place that, that women were placed in during that time period. 
And so, so here you have the well where a woman is not supposed to come during these hours to the well. But that's where Jesus encounters the woman of Samaria. Verse 6 says, Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, we just read that, was weary, sitting by the well at noon. Verse 7, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Jesus spoke to this woman. And you're not supposed to do that in public. You're not supposed to, to interact like this, let alone the fact that she is a Samaritan. The disciples wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. The, the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. And Jesus asks her, it says, give me a drink. I want you to notice something here. Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes. He needed to go to Samaria. And he, he went on purpose to this, this town of drunkenness. And he crossed every cultural barrier, every, even the gender barrier, in order to pursue this woman. He needed to go to Samaria because there was a woman there who needed to know that she was loved. And the best way to get her attention was to simply ask, would you give me a drink? And the water was known as the gift of God. And an and Arab, when, when asked for water, they would, in order to perform the favor of, of, of giving water, they would go out of their way in the middle of a desert to go and get water and fetch it for somebody. It was a, a huge honor to be able to provide water for somebody. And so Jesus is elevating her and saying, hey, would you give me this incredible gift? Would you pay me this favor? And he's treating her like a, a very special person. Verse 8 says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, emphasizing the fact that these two are alone there at the well. This is, in this day and age, it's not that big of a deal. But in that day and age, this is somewhat of an almost scandalous type of picture that Jesus is here, and he's focused in on talking to one Samaritan woman there by the well. The woman of Samaria said to him, you can tell by her reaction that she's kind of shocked by this. Why would Jesus do this? This is, this is out of the norm. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews, John explains, have no dealings with Samaritans. This, this is just not the way that things are done. But Jesus sees something, I believe. As he looks at this woman, she's coming at noon. She's coming at a time when she doesn't have to interact with the other ladies, when she thought that she could be totally isolated. This woman who's pulling into herself because she's been through so much in her life. Maybe she's made a lot of bad choices that got her there. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. All right, so the everlasting good news is good news, not... Okay, we're going to keep doing this, I promise, every week until you get it, right? So the good news is good news, not good advice. There's a big difference between good news and good advice. And there's also a difference between a gift and something that you pay for, right? Now, here's the thing. I want you to imagine for a second. I, I did a little research on Google and I found some homes that were worth around $10 million here in this area. There's one on the coast. It was around $8 million near Hearst Castle. There's one in Paso Robles that's worth about $10 million. I want you to imagine for a second that, that I'm going to give you this home near Hearst Castle. It's, it's got beachfront property. You can walk out of this home and go down to the beach. Nobody's around. You can just see the beach from your windows there in your, your massive home with lots of bedrooms, more bathrooms than you ever want to clean. And I tell you that, hey, I have a really wealthy friend and, and he's going to give you this house. The only condition is that you need to live in it and take care of it. No mortgage payments. The house is yours, free and fully yours. Would you take the house? No? How many of you would take the house? How many of you would not take the house? 
right? I don't know if I mentioned, but you can't resell the house. One, one trick to this, right? So here's the deal. You live in this house, and then suddenly you, you find out from the government that you owe taxes. They're called property taxes. I don't know much about these, but apparently on a house at this value, you now owe $7,000. And that's just for the month of December. Then, then comes the month of January. You owe another $7,000. Then comes the month, and every single month you owe $7,000 in property taxes. Is that gift free? And yet so often, when I have introduced people to Jesus, I've said, here's the good news, here's the gospel. Now here's what you need to do to make sure that God keeps loving you. Have you ever looked at it that way before? Like, hey, it's good news until I get there, and then I need to make sure that I maintain this. That's not good news. That's good works. That's that's you trying to to merit something in your salvation. But the good news is that He wants to do it all for you. He wants to transform your life in absolutely every way. He wants you to be a new creation in Christ Jesus for good works which He has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So He says, if only you knew the gift of God. Now notice when He says, if you knew the gift of God, He couples it with something. What does He say right after that? Because if you, only you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. If, if only you recognize the fact that I am the gift. Uh, if only you could, could realize the fact that, that I came from the throne of the universe. I came down here. I came and I needed to come here. I came and, and I'm making this proposal to you that you would now come to find all of that love that you are seeking in me. You see, the picture that we find in, in, in the entire Bible is that God, what God wants for your life, everything that he wants for your life is relational in nature. You believe that? Does that sound a little too good to be true? Look at Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Everything else hangs on this. In Matthew seven twelve, he says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And this is the law and the prophets. This is everything. Paul, writing in Romans 13.10, says, Love is the fulfilling of the law. John, writing in 1 John, says, And this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Everything that God wants for you is relational in nature. And God knew that what Jesus knew, that what this woman was longing for was a relationship that would fulfill the wants of her soul. And God knows that what you and I are longing for, whether you recognize it or not, whether I recognize it or not, I'm longing for love. I'm longing to be loved. And what he wants for you is to recognize how loved you are so that you can go and love freely. Verse 11, the woman says there, well, sir, you you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Are you, are you greater than, than, than that patriarch Jacob? Now here's the amazing thing. The first story that, that we see of Jacob at a well, Jacob is sent off by his dad and he goes off to his home country and his dad says, go and find a wife. And where does he meet his wife? He goes to a well about noon And Rachel comes to water the sheep. And he's like, why are you coming at noon to water the sheep? You should be out at pasture, but here. And he moves the stone and he falls in love with Rachel. (laughs) Jesus comes to a well called Jacob's well. Not the same well, but a, a well known as Jacob's well. He comes at noon to find a Samaritan woman who's got a lot of baggage in her life. And I have good news for you this morning. If you've got some baggage in your life, if you're recognizing that you have some baggage in your life, Jesus has come for you. Christmas is about what he has done for you. 
Jesus answered, verse 13, and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Isn't that the truth? Have you experienced that in life? I mean, I'm not talking about going and getting a drink of water or getting some orange juice from the fridge. I'm talking about anything in your life that you've tried to satisfy yourself with. I mean, I've tried to satisfy myself with sports in high school. I've tried to satisfy myself with good things like, like skiing and mountain biking. I've tried to satisfy myself with, with video games, with girls, with all types of things in my life. And you always end up wanting more. Have you ever experienced that before? You can eat and eat and eat of your favorite, favorite thing and, and you just find that it doesn't fully satisfy. And this Christmas, I want to challenge you that this Christmas is not about trying to satisfy you by searching for pleasures in a myriad of different ways. That's what our culture is selling to us at Christmas time. But it's about finding that true water of life that leads us to never, ever thirst again. Verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but that water will give him shall give him that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Because if you drink in of this love, it's going to overflow from you into other people's lives. I love what it says about this this story in the Desire of Ages, page one eighty seven. It's specifically talking about this water of life and what it represents. It says he who tastes of the love of Christ of what? He who tastes of the love of Christ will continually long for more, but he seeks for nothing else. The riches, honors, and pleasures of the world do not attract him. The constant cry of his heart is more of you. That's what Jesus is wanting to lead us to. That water that quenches the thirst of our soul is to learn that Learn the love of Jesus, to fixate ourselves on the the love of Jesus, to get to know him as our personal friend and savior, and to get to know him more and more. If if you're like me and you recognize that you still have some longings in your soul for anything else than Jesus, today's a great day to say, Jesus, I want you to become absolutely everything to me. And he wants for for the gifts that he gives us to, to be reciprocated. So something fun this week, I had been given a little battery uh, recharger for my cell phone. A little tiny pack. And you know, sometimes you feel like, is God really going to do this where my life will become an overflowing fountain into other people's lives? I just don't feel like that's, that's really happening the way that I want it to happen. Well, back several weeks before, actually, I had, had, had met a guy named Gary who's residentially challenged, as he calls himself. He lives uh, near Sunken Gardens, in the park, basically. So um, we were talking about it, and he was mad because the city had taken the light uh, post uh, that had the plugs and had, had stopped them from being able to get electricity to charge their phones. And he's like, what, I, what would really help is if you just got me, a, if, if I could buy a battery pack and then you could go recharge it, would you do that for me? I was like, yeah, sure. That was weeks ago. And I've been looking for him since. I've gone back three to four times looking for him, and I couldn't find him, even though he's usually in that same place. And I kept going back, kept going back, not able to find him. So I finally decided on Thursday I was going to go one more time. I gone on Wednesday. I went again on Thursday. I'll just run by there. I need to go by there anyway. It'll be fine. I drive up, and I, I walk, and I see him there, and I'm walking up to the bench. And he's looking down. He's talking to a friend. And I'm like, hey, how's it going? He's like, ah, not so good. Like, I got robbed last night. I had this, this battery pack, and it got taken along with my wallet. I had to go to, and he went on this long story about everything that got taken last night and how he now had his wallet on a chain. It's like, wait a second, you said your battery pack for your phone was taken? Yeah. Well, do you need another one? He's like, yeah, well, how much? How much are you going to charge me for it? It's like, it's free, it's yours. The look on his face, and even more so on his, his friend's face, is incredible. The ability to get to just reciprocate a little bit of the gifts that God gives us is the most rewarding thing that you will experience this Christmas. Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. It really is true. And, and, and Jesus wants for that love that, that begins to well up in us as He meets the relational needs in our lives. 
He wants for that love to become a river of water springing up into everlasting life that's just flowing out of our hearts. So the woman says, yeah, sir, give me this water, please, so that I don't have to come back and keep drawing water here. This would be fantastic. So Jesus, it's, some people wonder at this point, you know, did, does Jesus have ADD or is he a little confused? Why is he suddenly doing this? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. Now this woman, she's probably rehearsed thousands of times what her answer is going to be to this question. She, she probably knows how to avoid being able to be exposed to what's really going on in her heart. And you and I have become experts at that. We're learning not to be vulnerable. We learn to, to, to hide and not really to open ourselves up. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her but he goes ahead and he reveals the truth friends i want to tell you that truth and the revelation of what's going on in my life and the revelation of who i really am is part of god's love for me we talked about the 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 hour of his judgment has come just a couple weeks ago and how that's incredibly good news is it good news for jesus to come and point out the sins in my life Well, Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. You're you're exactly right. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. And now we begin to see a clearer picture of what this woman's going through. She's been searching for that fulfillment. She's She's been longing to find love in her life. And again and again, she's finding herself empty. And it would be the man who initiates the divorce. Man after man is rejecting her and throwing her out. But not only that, I mean, five husbands, that's almost unimaginable even by today's standards. That's a lot of husbands to go through. But now she's with a sixth man. She's looking just one more time. And Jesus says, and and he's not even your husband. Now in 2020, we're like, okay, big deal. Go back 50 years. We're like, oh, that's kind of a big deal. Go back 100 years, this is a really big deal. Go back 2,000 years, you don't do this. You don't just live with somebody. Right? So, so he's bringing out this, this huge bit of baggage in her life and pointing out like, hey, this whole thing is going on in your life. That's what the real picture is. Now here's the deal. The judgment is everything about... God's loving character. If God is not a God of love and He's just a tyrant and He's arbitrary, then for Him to come and reveal to us the baggage of our life, I don't know how many of you just sign up like, yeah, sign me up. I can't wait to have all of my goods laid out before the, the watching universe. I just, I just hope that, that, yeah, I want all of my secrets told. But there's something different about the way Jesus goes about this. Because notice... That the woman, she continues to, to try to evade. She's evaded by saying, I don't have a husband, but, but she doesn't run away. We talked about to fear God is to hope in His mercy, Psalm 147. And Psalm 130 says that there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. To fear God is to be in awe of this God of mercy and love and, and to be attracted even though we're sinful because we recognize that He is the only one who has what we need. So it says, she says in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now what, what is she trying to do in order to keep the conversation from being so awkward? She's trying to bring up some sort of conflict, something where she can say who's right and who's wrong. And friends, we do a lot of hiding from God within religion by arguing about who's right and who's wrong. And it's about our heart falling in love with Jesus. And truth is important in that it leads us to adore Jesus. But truth is not about tearing other people down. I love the way that... um, that 
Ty Gibson described it actually talking about uh, what true worship looks like. And you're going to see in just a second that Jesus ties this all into what worship is all about. But he said this, false worship always arouses shame and necessitates pretense. False worship makes you, you feel ashamed and makes you pretentious in the way that you act. It makes you tear other people down. It makes you do whatever it takes to make yourself feel like you're worthwhile. And that's because you're looking at a God who's waiting to condemn, who's waiting to tear you down, who's waiting to hopefully keep you out of heaven. And that's the opposite picture of what God is all about. True worship, he goes on to say, always opens the way to vulnerability and allows for authenticity. It allows for our hearts to open up. It allows for us to let him fully in. In this picture, she tries to pull him into debate. The debate about the worship issue. Is this, is this the right way to worship or is this the right way to worship? And now Jesus launches into something crucial. And it's crucial for us as we've been looking at the three angels' messages and we've been looking at Revelation 13 to 14 is the, the crux of Revelation. It's, it's the important end time message for you and I who are living in the times that we're living in. And Revelation is the book that of all New Testament books has the most references to worship. Again and again and again, it, the theme is worship. But then you get to, to Revelation chapter 13 and suddenly is where you suddenly see worship coming up again and again and again. In fact, I'll just remind you as we've gone through Revelation 13, some of the things that, that it says about worship. Revelation 13 and 14. Revelation 13, 4, it says, So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the sea beast. Remember, the sea beast is the one who's giving blasphemy against God, who's misrepresenting God's character, killing Christians in the name of God, saying that they're heretics, misrepresenting God throughout the dark ages. So they're worshiping the dragon who represents Satan, and they worship the beast, this, this, this power, uh, a religious political power, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Then Revelation 13, verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of the, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is again talking about that beast power, ascribing worth. So, so just a quick definition for, for worship. Worship, and we'll look at the Greek word another week, but, but worship is a combination of two words, worth and ship. And it basically means the acknowledgement of the worthiness of someone or something. Acknowledging the worth, the value that is in something or someone. And so it's saying that the, the whole world's going to be acknowledging this religious political system. They're going to be re- acknowledging through that Satan and his self-serving characteristics. And then it says, Revelation 13, about the land beast that comes up, which we've talked about being the United States in Bible prophecy. If you miss those messages, you can find them on our YouTube channel. And this beast leads all who dwell on the earth to worship the first beast. And he grants power to the image of the beast, saying that as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Again and again, worship, worship, worship. This false worship is brought up in Revelation chapter 13. And then Revelation chapter 14, the one important time in response to that, the three angels' messages that come, it says, Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and springs of water. And then if you go down to Revelation chapter 15, it's fascinating because the, I believe it's the 24 elders are saying, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. The, the reason that we're going to worship you is because you have judged. And your judgment is so beautiful and good and gracious and true and merciful. And because of that, we're going to worship. And so although the woman is trying to sidetrack Jesus, in reality, this is exactly where the conversation needs to go. It needs to go to worship. And now you find in the Gospels the one place where Jesus talks and defines exactly what worship is. There's only one other place that he uses the word worship, and that's in his temptation with Satan when he's, he's responding to the temptation. But here, you have Jesus actually defining what worship is all about. So if you want to know what worship is about, this is it. John chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither 
On this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. Now pause there. Obviously, Jesus is not using a racist, exclusivist type of thinking here. He's the one seeking out the Samaritan woman. In fact, he's the one that that goes on to condemn the Jews for for holding that salvation in and keeping it back. Instead, he's saying that, that salvation comes through this beautiful system that reveals who I am to the whole world, that reveals that I am a Savior for the whole world. Then verse 23, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers, so what are true worshipers? Will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Uh, Here's the beautiful thing. He says, I'm seeking worshipers. I'm going after them. I'm looking for worshipers. The Father is seeking worshipers. And, And where is He seeking them? He's seeking them in Samaria of all places. In, in the town of drunkenness, with a woman who's had five husbands and who's living with her boyfriend and who's coming at the well at noonday trying to hide from everybody and Jesus is showing up and saying, God's seeking worshipers. You want to ascribe worth to this incredible God of love? Because He will quench the thirsting of your soul. Then it says, Again, it repeats this idea in verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's a a perfect intersection where worship takes place, and that is truth that reveals who he is as a loving, merciful, gracious, just God. That is a vital part of our worship. In fact, let me read something to you really quickly here about worship. That's a a powerful definition of what, what worship looks like. This is from The Faith I Live By, page 59. It says, thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. That means they they don't really understand what God is like. They are as verily serving a false God as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshiping the true God as he is revealed in his word, in Christ, in nature, or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? God is a God of truth. Justice and mercy are the attributes of his throne. He is a God of love, of pity, and tender compassion. Thus, He is represented in His Son, our Savior. He is a God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and to whose character we are seeking to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. Like, Like He showed up with all of His glory to Moses saying, I'm the Lord God, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth. When we're worshiping that being, that is what true worship is about. So we see that, that we worship in truth. We need this truth because what does truth do? It awakens our spirit to worship. It awakens emotions towards God. We love because He first loved us. We can only respond to a love that shows up in our unworthiness, that shows up for us and hunts us down, that comes chasing after us, and we respond to that love And we point our finger to this beautiful God and say, He's the one who stepped low, who came close, who became Emmanuel, God with us. That's what this Christmas has got to be all about. I'm so thankful that my wife has that same vision for my little girls. Now, Abby and Livy are getting old enough that they can begin to, to have conversations with us about what's going on in life. And so, Leah and I, we're trying to decorate and figure out what we want to do for, for Christmas. And as she, I shouldn't say we, as she is decorating, <laughs> she's an amazing wife. Anyway, as she's getting things, things prepared to make the holidays really special, she says, I want to make them really special for the girls. And I want them to know that this is all about Jesus. And so we talked about it and we came up with this idea where each and every morning after breakfast, we take the girls over and Leah brings out a stable scene with a manger and angels and Mary and Joseph and we, we go through the story about what Jesus has done for us. And then at the end of that, what do you, what do you girls do? Do you remember? They're not listening to me right now. That's okay. They love that moment because then they get to go and they get to get a gift. And underneath, Uh, of the Christmas tree, we have this little jar that has a gift for Jesus. 
You know, that's what Christmas is all about. It's about Jesus. It's about giving to Jesus. And so they bring their gifts to Jesus, and they place them in that jar, and they'll tell you that that those gifts are for Jesus. And how's that going to happen? Well, there's somebody in need out there whose suffering is touching the heart of Jesus that somehow God is going to lead us to to be able to alleviate that suffering. I don't know what it's going to be for you during this holiday season if you don't have little, little children, but somehow I believe that God wants to lead you to daily adore Jesus for who He is and what He's done for you. To, to recognize in the Bible a God of infinite love who's revealed from cover to cover, a God who chases after you, who in Isaiah 65 verse 1 it says, I said, here I am, here I am to a nation who wasn't called by my name. Here I am. I'm chasing after you. I want you. Because here's the amazing picture of what this is saying. It says, notice, the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God wants your love. And so here's a perfect match in the making. You need love. You want love. In fact, if you think about your life, you think about why it is that that you have some of the issues that you might have in life, if I think about some of the issues that I have, I recognize that it comes down to the relationships and the ways that I have been mistreated or I've made bad choices and mistreated others, the shame that I felt, the guilt that I felt, all of those things compiled have caused me to become the person that I am today. I'll give you an example. I remember going off to elementary school. Elementary school is a rough place. I hope our elementary school is not like that. It's not from what I've seen. But I remember going off to elementary school thinking, I'm going to have all these new friends and all these people. And I remember the eighth grade girls talking about how Joshua Doobie was the cool first grader. Like, what about me? Look, he's so funny. And what are you doing? Get out of here. And I remember later on in school, all the kids that talked about what a big head I had. Maybe it's because I was going to be really tall and I had an extra big head, or maybe I just still never grew into my head. I'm not sure. But they would talk about how big my head is. And I remember one day, we were sitting around the table, is the way I remember it at least, and, and one of my family said something that made me just lash out and storm off to my room in tears. They probably said something about my head. And I remember my mom coming and she's like talking to me like, well, why is this, why did that, why was that such a big deal to you? And so I told her about how kids had made fun of my head. I know it's a small thing. But you realize that the reason we react the way that we do, the reason that we have all the issues that we do, it's a, it's a compilation. You are the sum of the relationships that you have experienced in your life. And what you need to know is that there's a God of love who wants to love you unconditionally, who wants to bring healing to you this morning. The reality is when you know that you're fully known, like this woman recognized, this guy knows everything about me. But you also know that you're fully loved healing can take place in your life that will allow you to blossom into a loving person. Just look at what takes place at this woman who has been so focused in on herself and her problems, who's trying to fulfill her, 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 her cravings with one man after another, five husbands and now another boyfriend. When verse 25, it says, The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, now get this, Jesus didn't go around telling people he was the Messiah, but Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the one who's telling you all things. This is what it's all about. It's about the water of life that comes from a relationship of love with me. So then his disciples come up to like, what's going on here? But they don't challenge Jesus. Jesus is busy looking at the fact in verse 28, the woman left her water pot, went into the city. He's looking at that water pot and he knows that what he said has made a difference. (laughs) She's no longer craving after the water that this world can offer her. She's now thinking about a love that will satisfy her soul. It's pretty fascinating when you study addiction. There's a guy, Johan Hari, who did a TED Talk and wrote a book on addiction. And what he boiled it down to, when you look at studies that they've done with rats and cocaine, and you look at a lot of different things of of what different countries have done in dealing with addiction. He said, addiction 
the, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's human connection. It's relationship. And when people have a healthy relationship, they can go into the hospital, they can receive morphine, and they can walk out of the hospital not addicted, where if you give that same drug on the street to somebody, they are definitely addicted to that drug and they can't get away from it. Time after time, he cites examples and says, you know what people really need is connection and love in their lives. That is what you were created for. That's the other part of this this phrase. Worship him who made. He made you. And he created you in his image. And God is love. You were created for love on a level that you can only imagine. And that's why you have cravings and longings for something more because only the love of God can fulfill that craving in your heart. And that is something that he longs to fill you with and then to have you pass on to others as we see taking place in this story. The woman left her her water pot and then she said to the men, now notice, now she's running to a place, maybe the city gate or a place where the women are just hanging out and the men are just hanging out and she's not supposed to be going there. They know who she is. They know her history. They know what she's been up to. And look at what she's bragging about or what what she's so excited about, I should say. Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? This guy just told me everything, all of my past. He told me about it. Come and see this man. You want to come see him too? Now it all depends on the character of the person who's telling you, whether you're going to run to this person or not. But apparently in looking at the joy on this woman's face, in looking that she had found a water that was quenching her thirst, already a fountain was flowing out of her soul. And they said, man, we want what this woman has. And the whole village flocks out. Verse 30, then they went out in the city of the city and came to him. And and you go on to read verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to him, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. He's the Savior for everybody. We've come to realize that this is the Messiah because he came and he told us all things with non-condemning love. Friends, don't shrink away from the things that that Jesus tells us are harmful in our lives. He only wants you to know that he has something better for you. That he wants to fulfill you in a way that nothing else can fulfill you. He's only giving you those instructions because he wants to give you a better life. And they're really just his promises of how he will transform your life. So Peter, as he walked into the room, the woman expects that this is just another client But Peter is an evangelist. As she opened the door, Peter said, I am your friend, Peter Dottie, and I'm here just to talk to you as a friend, not for your services. Stunned and confused, Nellie was spellbound. A thousand questions were flying through her head. Who was this man? After further introductions, Peter asked Nellie two questions. How would you feel having your own family one day? What memories do you think you are creating for your family right now? Here's a a guy who comes in in love saying, I'm not here for your services, but let's think about what's going on in your life right now. Suddenly, Nellie broke down into tears. She reached for her normal clothes to wear so that she could talk while properly dressed. Peter gave her a business card and further explained to her that he was an evangelist and told her that she could call him if she wanted to talk more. Peter gave her roughly $150 for wasting her time. (laughs) She was even more stunned. She said, for what manner of man gives you that much money without having touched you at all? Nellie had never once experienced this generosity in her business. And it goes on to tell that Nellie, within six hours, called Peter talked to Peter and he came and he gave her some Bible studies that were in her language that she could read. And as she read through those Bible studies, she prayed. She realized that there was a God of non-condemning love who wanted to transform her life. And she accepted Jesus. She actually became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And now 
She's reaching out to those same people on the street. She's found water that quenches the thirsting of her soul, and it's overflowing into lives. And there are 25 prostitutes who are no longer prostitutes because she has invited them to come and taste of the water of life. And they, too, have become Christians. Friends, it takes recognizing that Jesus fully knows you, and he also fully loves you. And then turning and running towards that love with arms open wide, learning to adore that incredible God who stepped down from the throne of the universe to come be Emmanuel, God with us. Who said it's, I will do whatever it takes to come close to them. I'm going to chase them, to pursue them with my love. This Christmas, I want to learn to adore a God like that. I want to truly experience worship. The last quote I'll share with you is again from Ty Gibson. He says this as a definition of, of true worship. Worship is the habitual process of accurately assessing the character of God, ascribing worth, we talked about, and ascribing worthiness to Him for who He is. Father, would you please lead us to adore you? We know that you are beautiful beyond comprehension, that your love is what we truly need to satisfy the longings of our soul. Yet, God, maybe, maybe this morning we're at different places. Some of us just need you to grasp our attention, help us to hear you saying, would you give me a drink? Maybe some of us today we need to recognize that you are offering a gift it will become water springing up out of our soul that will lead us to never thirst again. Lord, would you open our eyes to how good the gift really is? And maybe some of us, we recognize it's good, but, but we haven't really gotten that excited about it because we don't recognize how desperately we need it. Would you reveal to us the nooks and crannies of our heart that are holding back from you? The things that that we are seeking to satisfy ourselves with, that we're not even recognizing, Lord? Would you reveal that to us in love, with your non-condemning love? Would you open our eyes to see our need of forgiveness? And Father, maybe some of us are experiencing that, but what we really need is to allow that water of life to go flowing out of us into the world around us. Lord, I pray that you would love our families through us, you'd love our church family through us, that you'd love this community through us. God, this world so desperately needs to see Christ-like love. I pray that you transform our hearts and that you would love this world through us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.